Our text this morning are the words that we read from Micah 4. And we will not read those again, but I would ask that you turn there and keep your Bibles open because we will be working through that text verse by verse. So again, that's Micah 4, verses 1 through 5. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the North Garden of the United Nations headquarters, there is this bronze statue of a man pounding at a heavy sword. Perhaps you've seen it. It bears the title, Let Us Turn Our Swords Into Plowshares. It was presented to the United Nations by an artist from the Soviet Union, 1959, and it symbolizes man's desire to put an end to war. Nearby that statue, there's a giant stone wall, and it bears the words of our text. Human beings long for peace and for unity between the nations, for a day when there will be no war. And yet, human beings also disagree about how that should happen. The United Nations, for their part, they've declared abortion, the slaughter of the unborn, to be a human right. And they've said that policies must be put in place to enforce that. So, to achieve their version of world peace, political war needs to be made against those who would defend the unborn. Uganda lost millions of dollars in foreign aid for their policies protecting the unborn. So how is the UN ever going to achieve that world peace? If they're committed to removing pro-life policies, and of course pro-lifers aren't going away anytime soon, what kind of resolution will there ever be? And yet, our text does say these words. It does make this promise. A day will come when the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And that promise is not given for us to simply shrug it off as if prophets will be prophets and this stuff shouldn't be taken literally. No, this is the word of God. It was inspired by by God to be spoken through Micah, to be recorded and to be passed on even to us today. And it was done so because we, you and I, need to hear these words. Our Father wants to change the way that we think about our world and about the events and circumstances of our own lives. So I preach to you the Word of God, and we'll use the following theme. Yahweh promises that the world will learn His ways and know peace. Following through our text, we'll look first at the conquest of Yahweh's kingdom. That's in verses 1 and 2, then the peace that Yahweh's kingdom brings in verses 3 and 4, and finally the response of Yahweh's people in verse 5. Now if we're to understand what God would have us believe with this prophecy, we must first look at the time indicator that our text gives us. The very first words of our text are, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. This phrase, the latter days, is used a lot in the Old Testament, but it doesn't always refer to the same time period. The time it refers to depends on the prophet using it. For example, in Deuteronomy 4, it refers to the latter days when the Israelites would inherit the land of Canaan, which of course is long past. Or in Deuteronomy 31, it refers to the latter days when they would return to God after being unfaithful. Again, long past. 
Broadly speaking, we could say that the phrase simply means in the future, but it always refers to a new age, a new epoch, a time that's hard to imagine from where we now stand. Also, it almost always refers to some starting point for other future events, which might actually be separated by long periods of time. To give an illustration, prophets, they look into the future the way that we might look at a mountain range in the distance. We say, there are the mountains. Or if you're driving, you say, when we get to the mountains, then such and such will happen. It will get cooler, whatever it be. And yet, we we know that there's often a huge distance between those first foothills and the taller mountains in the distance. Yet, we refer to them as one thing. So it is with the prophets and with this phrase, the latter days. These events may be separated by great moments in time. So we see that Micah is prophesying about a future age. We don't know exactly when it will begin. And he says, again in verse 1, In those days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills. The meaning of this expression might not be so clear to us today, but it certainly would have been to the people of Micah's day. The text isn't talking about some major geologic upheaval where some mountains would become thrown down and others would be raised up, but it's using symbols that the people of Micah's day would have recognized. In Micah's time, people believed that every god had its own mountain, and the higher the mountain, the better. And the fact is, many mountains were much higher and much more impressive than Mount Zion. So for many people, this meant that the God of Mount Zion was also not really all that impressive compared to some of those other gods. To make matters worse, the empires in those regions of those tall mountains were growing ever more powerful and were conquering the whole world, one region after another. And Micah, in the previous chapters, had just finished prophesying that those armies would soon be running up and down all over Mount Zion. So if you were an average Israelite, you got the message from these Assyrian conquerors. They would say, you belong to a tiny, backwards, local religion which is silly, insignificant, and pathetic in comparison to the religion of our great god, Asher or Molech, or whoever it be. They would say, our God Asher, well, he is enthroned in the heavens on the heights of his glorious mountain, and our armies are running up and down all over your little hill. You're just another indigenous group of people running after your local Yahweh, just like all the others run after their local gods in every part of the world where we have conquered them. They would say, look at your neighbors, the Edomites, they act just like you, or your old rivals, the Philistines, How different are they? You backwards people and your gods are worthless and your Yahweh is just another one to bite the dust. And then Micah gets this prophecy that the mountain of Yahweh would be raised up, again metaphorically speaking, to be the highest of the mountains, to be lifted up above the hills. In other words, a day will come when the religion of those gods will be altogether forgotten and when there will be no religion in the world like that of Yahweh. Think about what a bold claim it is for an Israelite to make in that time, 
Today, actually, it might seem more reasonable. Christianity is, by far, the biggest and the fastest-growing religion in terms of raw numbers. But think about the boldness, and to the eyes of the world, the foolishness of making that kind of prophecy in Micah's day. That takes faith. Faith, which is the assurance of things not yet seen. Our prophecy goes on, still in verse 1. Peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Now in Micah's day, not even the nation of Israel was going to the, mount, to the house of the Lord, to his mountain, to worship him alone. At best, he would have been treated like one of many gods. Only a small remnant was actually still honoring and serving him as the only true God. So again, think about what a foolish prophecy this would have been to the people of Micah's day. How hard this would have been to believe. Really? Entire peoples will come to Zion? Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of God? That's a hard one to swallow. That doesn't seem likely. That takes faith. Now, Yahweh is not promising that the physical kingdom of Israel would be again restored to greatness. You can see this already in earlier chapters of the book. God is willing sometimes to advance his kingdom even by breaking its borders, by bringing persecution, by sending his people into exile. The kingdom that God is building is not one that consists of walls and palaces and borders. He's not talking about rebuilding a mighty city or gathering a mighty army with horses and chariots. That's not what God is after. Instead, God's kingdom consists of the obedience of the nations. You can see that in verse 2. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. His ways here refers to Yahweh's words and his works. It, It means what he is like, what he has done, so they will know who God is, what he loves, what he hates, how he acts. Those are his, his ways. And his paths refer to his revealed will, the paths that he would have us walk in. So the nations will learn what God is like and also what he would have us do. And again, notice God isn't interested in building walls or armies. His goal is to bring people to the knowledge of who he is, and converting sinners to his ways. He's interested, interested in ending sin, in ending sex trafficking, slavery, the abuse of stronger nations against weaker nations, corruption, injustice, and all unrighteousness. He's interested, as our text says, in teaching the nations his ways so that they would walk in his paths. Well, where will that knowledge of his ways and his paths come from? The source of that knowledge is God's word. We can see that in the last part of verse 2. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The law, in Hebrew, that's the Torah, and it's probably better translated as teaching or instruction. It's not just the commandments, but everything that Scripture teaches us. So the basis for that knowledge that the nations will have of God's ways and his paths 
the basis for that knowledge is found in the teaching about God that comes from his word. That word, our text says, will go out from Jerusalem into the nations and teach them about God. Well, that sounds nice, we say, but when is that ever going to happen? When is God's word ever going to go out into the nations? Well, if we're asking that question, then we've missed the fact that God has fulfilled so much of this prophecy already. The going out of his word, that's exactly what we saw in the coming of Christ. He fulfilled the law, he died, he rose, and then what? Then he sent his apostles out. And he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 28, he tells them the same thing. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Notice there the fulfilling of our prophecy in Micah 4, the word of God going out to the nations and teaching them his ways. And then at Pentecost, he gave them the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues. And why the gift of tongues and not some other gift? Well, so that they could speak the languages of all peoples, so that the word of God would go out and spread to all nations. And as we reflect on these things, we can notice that the word of God hasn't ever stopped spreading since that day. More peoples are still being reached. The word of God is still breaking new barriers, entering into new regions. Groups like Wycliffe Bible translators are still using their gifts of tongues to translate God's word and to reach more unreached people groups until one day God's word will reach the ends of the earth. That's what Paul saw as the heart of his mission as well, as we read from Romans 15. It was his mission to bring the word of God to the nations so that the nations would glorify God for his mercy and that the nations would become an offering acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He speaks of how he has been leading the nations to obedience so that he says from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. The word of God and the knowledge of God is going out to the nations. The result of this knowledge of Yahweh and conversion to his ways brings us back to these famous words of our text with which we started. That beautiful, radical, earthly peace that all people long for. Verse 3, He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. The plain meaning of that expression, that they will beat their swords into plowshares, is that these instruments of war and destruction will no longer be needed, so that they will be converted into instruments of productivity and life. We take that expression figuratively today, since we don't wage war with swords anymore, but that may have actually been a common practice in Micah's day since metal instruments are costly. In Joel 3, you can actually find the opposite expression. There, Joel says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. There, he was calling the nations to war. But now Micah is looking past that time of war to a future where there will be peace. Verse 4 captures the same idea. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. Literally, the Hebrew 
says there will be no terrorists. The image of every man sitting under his vine and under his fig tree suggests a peace and security as well as a contentedness. Every person content with their own inheritance, unlike the rulers of his day. But that brings us then back to our original question. How? How will such a future ever come about? The UN has been trying this for 70 years, and it doesn't look like they've made any progress at all. Human beings simply disagree about what that peace should look like. Let's not forget, ISIS is also interested in world peace, according to their version. So what are we to make of this prophecy? Should we actually believe it? Could it actually be true in this world? Well, we've seen that it begins in the age of the church with the sending out of the word of God. And we know that we can only ever have perfect peace when Christ returns. Only then could things be perfect. And besides that, well, we may as well admit it. We don't know to what degree this will be perfectly fulfilled before Christ's coming. But here's what we do know. First, the promises in verses 1 and 2 have been and are being fulfilled in our own day. The word of God has gone out from Jerusalem out into the world, and it's still reaching the last corners of the globe. That prophecy, which would have been absolutely unbelievable in Micah's day, has been undeniably fulfilled in our day, right before our eyes. In the last 2,000 years, the gospel has exploded out from Jerusalem, and it is reaping a harvest. Don't take for granted how difficult that would have been to believe in Micah's day, or in Jesus' day, or in the days of the early church. Our God is fulfilling this prophecy in our own day, and we have the pleasure and privilege of seeing it and being a part of it. Yes, to be sure, much of the world's Christianity is still Roman Catholic, mixed with spiritism or corrupted by health and wealth preaching, And yet, even in those areas, we so often see God preparing the soil, placing Bibles into the hands of the people, and rightly teaching them that it is the Word of God, so that when faithful missionaries come, they turn and they read it, and they see there the gospel. At least then, much of the work is prepared in advance when these missionaries come. And we see this in Brazil, in Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and many other places. And yes... It's true. We may observe that the the growth of Christianity is far from steady. It advances in some places even while it retreats for a time in others. As we can see from earlier chapters in this book, sometimes God advances his kingdom by bringing persecution, by separating the sheep from from the goats, and by purifying his church from worldliness and heresy. Let's not forget he's not building a kingdom of walls and borders. He's building a kingdom of converted hearts. But we do see over history the word of God going out, reaching peoples that we never before would have thought possible. And in God's time, for whom a thousand, days is, or a thousand years is like a day, his word is going out and filling this whole world. And it is bringing with it great fruit, the conversion of peoples and entire communities. So that's the first thing. We are seeing the promises of verses 1 and 2 being fulfilled. Secondly, 
insofar as those promises are being fulfilled, we should expect to see the promises in verses 3 and 4 being fulfilled. That's certainly what Paul expected. He expected the obedience of the nations, not just the word reaching them, but them obeying. So yes, even prior to Christ's return, we should expect to see verse 3 beginning to be fulfilled, even in our own day. And we do. We may think of gospel men like William Wilberforce, who stood up against the great tide of political opposition to end the African slave trade because of what he knew from the gospel. The knowledge of Christ and what he had done drove Wilberforce with a relentless force to bring that evil to an end. Or we may think today of the largely, even overwhelmingly, Christian-driven effort to end sex trafficking. Or we may think of the Geneva Conventions of Warfare, rooted in Christian theology as developed by our church fathers like Augustine, and followed now by nations around the world. So yes, that also means that the Word of God will bring, in our day and in our world, political transformation. How could it be any different There's no such thing as a Christian who is politically neutral, who can keep his religion completely free from his politics. Every government, including Ottawa, will be ruled by some law, and God is most certainly interested in Ottawa also upholding and defending his law. His goal is not a world of converted sinners living under immoral, diabolical laws that call good evil and evil good. We can see this in the beginning of verse 3. He will judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. Grammatically, it's not clear if that, that he is God or his word, but it doesn't make a big difference. God accomplishes this by means of his word. And the point is this. As that word goes out into the world, God will teach the nations his ways. That's verses 1 and 2. And his word, his word, not the UN or any other human force, his word will rebuke those aggressive nations. And his word will give us the wisdom and the principles that we need to make our laws. So that's the second thing. Insofar as the word is going out, we can and we do witness real change in our world. There's no biblical justification for a view of the future that expects all things to simply go on as normal without the gospel making a difference in our world. He certainly will. Third, as the gospel goes out, it does bring with it what we call the antithesis, that ancient war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The gospel brings division. Jesus says he came to bring a sword, and the world will hate God's people until the very end. And we see this in Iraq and in Syria, at the cruel hands of ISIS, or in Nigeria, or Pakistan, or North Korea. Yes, the earth will be changed by the gospel, but the enemy hates losing his territory, and he will wage war all the more violently as the word goes out. The gospel brings with it the sword and that enmity between the seed of the serpent and that of the woman. Moreover, in every part of the world, evildoers will still seek to to accomplish their evil on this earth, and they must be stopped for this earth to have peace. That's why, according to Romans 13, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. 
So it would be foolish for us to insist on this piece of Micah 4 prematurely before the word has gone out and done its work. We do look forward to that future glory when men will beat their swords into plowshares. But as one pastor put it, if we do that prematurely, we may find ourselves fighting the dragon with our plowshares. But we will see this world transformed. It is impossible that the word of God would go out as it's going out today and not bear fruit. God's kingdom begins, yes, with spiritual transformation, but there cannot be spiritual transformation without real and significant life transformation. But now let's step back from that glorious future into October 2015. It's true that God's word is doing marvelous things on the earth in our own day, but we also still live in a world with aggression, with ISIS, with Boko Haram, with ethnic cleansing in Africa and Burma, with endless war at the hands of drug cartels in South America, with the spread of Islam, and with billions in our world who worship other gods or no god at all, with a Christianity that may be growing in the world but is certainly retreating here in North America and in Europe. It's true we've seen much more of this prophecy fulfilled than ever Micah could have imagined, but still, so much of our world rejects God and his word and walks in the name of their own gods. What is our response to those things? We can see it in verse 5. And to put that in context, don't forget how much more difficult this prophecy would have been to believe in Micah's day. And yet... Even though God's name was hardly heard of outside of the borders of Israel, and even though the armies of other gods were running up and down all over Mount Zion, even still we see God's people respond in faith. Verse 5, they say, For all the people walk, each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Right now, we don't see this prophecy fully fulfilled. And even less so with the people of God in Micah's day. But knowing what the future holds for us, we may be encouraged to keep the faith, even if our numbers, numbers dwindle, even if we feel right now like one of many religions, and even if the world treats us that way, even if we endure persecution. If Micah's generation without having seen even a portion of this vision fulfilled, if they still pledge themselves to be faithful, how much more shouldn't the church today, which in the course of history has seen so much of this prophecy fulfilled, how much more ought we to hold on to the end? That ought to be our response. And that has huge implications for how we live now. As we think about what Christ has already done in the last 2,000 years, Let us be encouraged to keep up the work of mission, to bring it further. Our efforts are God's instrument to bring his word to the world and to transform it. If we don't get to keep the money that we make here on this earth, then let's use it to buy things that can't ever be lost, to build God's kingdom. Let's also be encouraged that even if the battle line fails to move forward in our country, in Canada, or in our century, Even if our enemies force force us to retreat, God will do his work. 
And as we consider that unsteady growth and sometimes even retreat of the kingdom of God in the last 2,000 years, let us be reminded to not build hastily, lest we only build a foundation that will later collapse. Rather, let us teach our children and do the work of mission and build in such a way that when persecutions come, not if, but when they come, then the gospel and the kingdom of God will find a firm foothold here in Owen Sound. Let us also root ourselves very firmly in the scriptures and the true doctrine that they teach. Let that truth not be just theological affirmations that we have in our heads, but actually the way that we see our world and live in it. And let us not be discouraged when the mountains of those other gods or godlessness look much higher or more majestic than our own. God's kingdom is already filling this earth. And he will bring those mountains low as well. He will show our nation of Canada that he is God. Let's not forget, he's the Lord of hosts with tens of thousands of angels at his command. He is conquering the earth and the kings of this earth will bring him their tribute. No matter what the battle holds for us in our corner of the world, whether they make advances against us and break our lines, Let's not forget, He is still our salvation. He is still our joy. And we will never fear those who can only kill the body. Amen. Let's respond to God.